What makes a person famous? Now, I'm not talking about like flavor of the month or firework famous. You know, those people that come along and shooting star and then they quickly come down. Those people that you just forget about in the next week or two. I'm not talking about a fame that's specific to one type of a trend or scene or, or even group of people. I'm not talking about a Kanye West or a Brangelina level of fame or notoriety. I'm not even referring to a type of fame specific to Americana. Michael Jackson or Elvis or Monroe or even Bill Gates. What I'm talking about when I'm speaking of fame is a multi-generational, cross-cultural, global type of fame that spans languages, locations, even time periods. If you were to Google top 10 famous people of all time in the world, you'll notice two things emerge from such a search. Aside from the couple of givens, almost every list you'll run across, it varies. It varies mainly because our metric for judging fame is not exactly uniform. But you're going to notice as you work through these lists that while there's some variety and there's a few givens, there is a commonality that everyone that makes any of the lists has in common, something that they share. You see, to be truly famous, you have to have done something that transcends yourself. To be famous on a global, generational scale, you would have needed to accomplish something huge, right? Like lead a political revolution, such as Alexander, Napoleon, Washington, Mao. Foster some type of a movement within the arts, like Leonardo, Michelangelo, Beethoven, Mozart. You would have needed to invent something important, like Newton, Bell. Ford, Gates, Jobs, even Edison. You would have needed to have developed some type of groundbreaking scientific theory. Galileo, Darwin, Einstein, or Hawking. Maybe to be this famous, you would have contributed a philosophical idea. Something that transcends yourself, like Aristotle, Socrates, the Apostle Paul, Marx, Nietzsche, Freud. Maybe you would have needed to initiate a radical social change like Lincoln, Gandhi, Luther, Cromwell, Mandela, or MLK. Obviously, creating a religious movement would accomplish it like Jesus, Buddha, Muhammad, or Moses. Even doing something that we might consider infamous will still get you on a list. Hitler. Stalin, famous people. My point is that generally speaking, to achieve this type of fame, you would have needed to lead, write, create, invent, develop something so noteworthy and lasting that your name would be known by all for all time. On an aside, it should be pointed out to, to make any of these lists, you would have to be so famous that you could be known, identified, recognized by just one name. Did you notice that? You don't even need a first and a last name with the people who make this list. Now, I bring all of this up to say there is one fascinating exception to this particular rule. 
Like that there is a man, a man who didn't invent a thing, wasn't scientific, left behind no philosophical contribution to the world, a man who never wrote or created a lasting work, who wasn't a revolutionary, wasn't even an agent of social change, A, a man who didn't start a religion, didn't discover a new land, a man who who isn't infamous and is instead universally held in high regard by just about every major religion. I mean, that's saying something, right? And yes, this man is as well known by just one name, Abraham. It's really amazing to consider that a gentleman who lived 4,500 years ago or so, who didn't possess a country, whose entire life was spent as a nomad, who was a shepherd by trade, who wrote absolutely nothing down, who had no intention of starting a religious movement, is beloved by every culture across the globe. According to listverse.com, Abraham, this man, is the third most famous person of all time. Behind only Jesus, one, Muhammad, two, and directly in front of Moses, four, and Buddha, five. Because Abraham is revered by all three monotheistic religions, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, as well as considered a prophet by some of the East, do you realize there are an astounding two million works written about Abraham? Beyond that, 9.1 million Google searches occur every month with the name Abraham. Listverse.com concludes, quote, among well over 99% of the world's cultures and societies, you will not have a problem when asking about the prophet called Abraham. As it pertains to the Old Testament, you should note that Abraham is mentioned 215 times. Additionally, he's mentioned again in the New Testament another 74 times. While we don't consider the Quran to be scripture, just for reference, Abraham again surfaces another 188 times. As far as his contribution to Christianity is concerned, understand Abraham's significance, his contribution cannot be undermined. In James chapter 2, verse 23, Abraham is called, he's given a unique title, the friend of God. Only for the Apostle Paul to later refer to him as the father of all those who believe and the father of the faith in Romans 4. For our purposes this morning, I want to start with just a simple question. There's no doubt that Abraham is a famous person. But what is it that made Abraham so significant? Like, what demanded this particular fame? And the answer may surprise you. Here's the answer. Absolutely nothing. As a matter of fact, the book of Genesis records more of Abraham's failures than it does his triumphs. As we've mentioned, on a few previous occasions... What Paul's letters to the Romans and the Galatians soundly communicate doctrinally. It is the book of Genesis, the book we are spending our time in, 
that illustrates practically this idea of grace. The genesis of grace. We've seen it happen, haven't we? I mean, think about it. Over the last 11 chapters. As an act of grace, God fashioned man in his image and likeness. As an act of grace, God created everything in the world for that man's enjoyment. As an act of grace, God then gave Adam a companion, Eve, the woman. As an act of grace, God placed them in a perfect garden to be utterly satisfied by. As an act of grace, God didn't immediately kill them when they ate the forbidden fruit. As an act of grace, God then promised a Savior to remedy the consequences of their sin. As an act of grace, God provided effectual coverings by offering the first sacrifices. As an act of grace, God kicked them out of the garden to remove access to the tree of life so they wouldn't live in such a fallen state forever. As an act of grace, God gave Adam and Eve Seth in the place of Abel, whom Cain killed. As an act of grace, God preserved the family lineage of Seth in a wicked world. As an act of grace, God called Enoch and warned uh, the wicked world that was around him of a coming judgment. As an act of grace, God saved Noah and his family from the global flood. As an act of grace, God promised to never again destroy the world as he had done. As an act of grace, God started the recreation process of the very planet he had destroyed. As we saw last Sunday, as an act of grace, God confused the languages so that the rebellious nations of the earth would scatter, preserving his plan for salvation. It's really hard to argue, isn't it? That the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis haven't oozed God's amazing grace. As we noted in our first study in this series called The Genesis of Grace, Moses, who's part author, part compiler of the first five books of what's known as the Torah, the first five books of your Bible. Moses established Genesis as the very first for a specific reason. For a nation who had just been called by God, supernaturally delivered from Egypt, led through the wilderness, God making provisions, sustenance, to a land of promise where they would live as a shining light into a dark world, living according to the law that God had just given them. It might have been easy for a people group with so much of that privilege to have adopted a sense of self-entitlement. That there was something intrinsically good about them in context to everyone else that necessitated all of this incredible divine favor. And yet, the story of Genesis makes it crystal clear that the children of Israel were chosen people, not because of anything concerning them, but only as a result of God's grace and their faith in God's promised Savior. This reality is perfectly illustrated in the calling and subsequent life of this man, Abraham. As we're going to see this morning, Abraham was a pagan idolater who was saved by God's grace when he had done nothing to earn it and nothing to deserve it. You might say that God chose Abraham before Abraham even chose to follow God. And then, 
And this is going to become a constant theme as we look at this man's life, as we look at his story. While Abraham's life would be characterized more by failure to obey God than success, because Abraham from day one placed his faith in the promised Savior, God's grace would not only save him, but would subsequently sustain him. It would never fail. The reality, just from a macro perspective of this man's life, Abraham teaches us two important truths about God. One, God's grace calls us. Independent of us. It's not about you. God's grace is just that good. And two, God's grace sustains us. Both aspects, God's grace calling us and God's grace sustaining us, both occur in spite of us. Abraham is the father of our faith because his life illustrates that regardless of past mistakes or present failure, God's grace will always remain sure when our faith is placed in Jesus. As we transition from the events of Babel, God's scattering of the nations as a result of their rebellion, the last few verses of Genesis 11, they're important because they focus our attention back onto the genealogy of Shem. If you recall, in Genesis chapter 10, we're given the genealogical records of Noah's three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, after this kind of story of Babel, we're, we're taken back to the genealogy of Shem. It's important to the narrative of Genesis. If you recall, following the tragic events of chapter 9, Noah makes several prophetic utterances, pronouncements, concerning two of his sons and one of well, his wicked grandson, a man by the name of Canaan. Specifically, Genesis chapter 9, verse 26, Noah says, and this is important, he says, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Something very specific and unique to Shem. Not only does this statement indicate that Shem shared Noah's heart for the true and living God, but in a much larger sense, it would appear that Shem's family lineage of the three sons would include the coming savior of mankind that had been promised to Adam and Eve all the way back in Genesis 3, verse 15. The last few verses of Genesis 11 are important because they connect this man Shem with Abram, who we'll come to find as Abraham. It should also be noted that while most people are inclined to divide the Bible naturally into two sections between Malachi and Matthew, Old Testament and New Testament. The case can be made that the better division of your Bible could occur between Genesis 11 and Genesis 12. In his commentary on this passage, Sandy Adams notes the significance of this shift. He writes, beginning in Genesis 12, the rest of the Bible is the story of the plan of salvation that God works through the Hebrews, the family of Abraham. So beginning with verse 27 of Genesis 11, we read that this is the genealogy of Terah, that Terah begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran begot Lot, and Haran died before his father Terah in his native land, in Ur of the Chaldeans. 
Then Abraham and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Ishka. But Sarah was barren, she had no child. And Terah took his son Abram and his grandson Lot, the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the, his son Abram's wife, and they went out with them from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. They came to Haran, the city, not to be confused with the man, and dwelt there. So the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now, one might say that this passage is quite straightforward. But understand, there is a lot that's happening within these verses that you might not be aware of or see in just a cursory reading. To begin with, what's being described here is not a good dynamic. Like notice, these descendants of Shem, this genealogy of Terah, they chose to settle in an area known as Ur of the Chaldeans. Now what makes this significant is that while God had scattered the people from Babel, you see what's happening? The godly lineage of Shem, they didn't move very far. As a matter of fact, the city of Ur was located a, a, a spit's distance from Babel. It was in the same area. It was in Mesopotamia, just a few miles south. According to archaeologists, the ancient city of Ur, which we know quite a bit about, was founded around 2100 BC. It quickly grew to have a vibrant population of 2400 people. The city of Ur was wealthy. It was wealthy because it had an abundant uh, abundance of natural resources, and it also had easy access to the Euphrates River, which was paramount for buying and selling, trade, whatnot. The city of Ur was also significant because it boasted a prominent ziggurat, very similar to what Nimrod had built in Babel. Some have even tried to make the case that it might have been the same Tower of Babel, just located there in Ur. Archaeological digs have shown that the city of Ur, during the time of Abraham, was actually an advanced society. It had a steady economy, and it had an emphasis on educational learning. We've actually uncovered a lot of the writings from this time. There was a massive library in Ur, very sophisticated place. But beyond these things, what's important for our consideration is that Ur was steeped in idolatry, idol worship. It's what the ziggurat had been established for. Of note, the worship of the pagan god, Nana the moon god. Now, on a, on a side note, Nana it was known by the symbol of the crescent moon, similar to that of Allah. The moon god was worshipped across Mesopotamia all the way up into the 7th century when Muhammad renamed the moon god Allah, chief above all gods, the one god. I included actually an interesting article at c316.tv that you can read. But the idea, the case that's made is that Abraham's worship in Ur was of Allah. And yet God called him away from that pagan worship into a land of promise, which completely targets the basic fundamental framework uh, by which uh, Muslims claim uh, that we all worship the same God. We don't. 
Abraham was called away from the worship of the moon god. You can read more about it if those type of things interest you. Regardless, Jewish legend claims that Terah and his family living there in Ur, the city established to the worship of this moon god, that they actually grew wealthy, buying and selling, making, crafting an industry of idolatry. They, they sold idols to this particular god. While that seems terrible, Joshua chapter 24, verse 2, paints even, an even worse picture. We're told, thus says the Lord God of Israel, your fathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor, dwelt on the other side of the river in old times, and they, plural, worshipped, they served other gods. Now the reason this whole framework presents a tragic turn of events is that the family of Shem, it would seem, even during the time period in which Shem is still alive, he would have been alive during the time of Abraham, they had abandoned the worship of the true and living God, the God of Shem, and they had instead diverged into idolatry. And yet, in spite of all of this, the fact that this godly lineage that was going to be called out was worshiping pagan gods, something happens. Like we're not told in our text, but something occurs that prompts Terah, this patriarch, to uproot his family and migrate 600 miles northwest, settling in the ancient city of Haran, which is located in present-day Turkey and was a key crossroads between the east and the west. Now, we're not told here in these last few verses of Genesis 11 what happened. But for a greater understanding of what's taking place, what's kind of happening between the lines here, I want to turn your attention for just a minute to a portion of a sermon given by an early church hero by the name of Stephen. Acts chapter 7. If you would turn there, verses 2 through 5. This is a portion of his sermon that gives us more insight into the verses that we just read. Stephen says, Brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham, and notice this, when he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Haran, and said to him, get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. Then Abraham came out of the land of the Chaldeans, dwelt in Haran, and from there, when his father was dead, Abraham, God moved him to this land which you now dwell, and God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on, but even when Abraham had no child, God promised to give it to him for a possession and to descendants after him. It seems, appears, that what motivated this move was that God appeared to Abraham, Abram, while he was still living in Ur of the Chaldeans, specifically commanding him, to do two things, to leave his country and to leave his relatives so that he could come to a land that God would show him. Now, please consider what prompted this. I mean, this is an amazing moment, right? God appearing to Abram. That's radical. So what prompted God appearing to Abraham? 
Did God appear to Abram? Because Abram was seeking God. Note, in no way does either Stephen's passage or the one we just read here in Genesis imply that that was the case. Abram wasn't a seeker. Did God call Abram because he was worthy? (laughs) On the contrary, what was Abraham doing when God appeared and called him? He was a pagan Gentile, not just worshiping false gods, but making those false gods the trinkets people could take with them. It wasn't even that he was a pagan worshiper. He was in the process. He was in the moment. He was in the midst of it all. Like no aspect of Abram's life necessitates God appearing to him. He wasn't worthy. He wasn't seeking. Abram was an idolater living in Ur. Understand, and this is a core concept that's of critical importance, but Stephen's larger point in this sermon that we just looked at, the sermon that he gives before a Jewish Sanhedrin that would later stone him to death, his whole point in bringing this up is to make the case that there was nothing inherent to Abraham or to his character that precipitated God's appearing or God's calling. God appeared to Abraham. God called Abraham. God interacted with Abraham. And it was only on account of God's grace and God's grace alone. God chose him, appeared to him, called him, and it had nothing to do with him and everything to do with God. Once again, while our text here in Genesis doesn't tell us this specifically, the authors of the New Testament provide more context than even what Stephen does to what's happening here. In addition to appearing to Abraham, which is incredible, because this is the first mention of God appearing to sinful man than God talking to Adam and Eve in the garden. God doesn't appear to Noah. He speaks to Noah. He walked with Enoch, but that seems to be a, a spiritual relationship that Enoch had with God. This is the first time since the garden God appeared, that we have this entire concept. It seems that God's command to leave Ur and to leave his family so that he could go to a land of promise, that God's original call possessed a much larger revelation of God's plan than what we have recorded in Genesis. In both Romans 4 verse 3 and James 2 verse 23, we're told by both the Apostle Paul and James, the half-brother of Jesus, that, quote, Abraham believed God. And it was accounted to him for righteousness. It's a phrase that you find repeated. And yet the question begs, what belief was of such significance that it would immediately make Abram righteous before God, even before he leaves Ur? In writing about Abraham in Galatians chapter 3, Paul, he adds an interesting detail that demands our attention and in many ways answers this question concerning what belief did Abraham have that made him righteous. Paul writes, quote, Just as Abram believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, therefore know that only those who are faith are sons of Abraham. 
And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, and this is the important line, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. Did you catch that? We're told here that what happened, it wasn't just that God appeared to him there in Ur, independent of him, just an act of God's grace. It's not just that God then called him to leave his relatives, to go to a land that he would show him. That, but that scripture that God preached to Abraham, the gospel message, that he was given the gospel. Like while a pagan idolater living in Ur, God appeared to Abraham and not only called him to go to a land of promise, but revealed to him that this move would be necessary so that God would be able to provide a savior through Abraham's family lineage. Understand, the reason they leave Ur was because Abram believed God and had placed his faith, his faith in what? And the message of the gospel, which is what? That God would provide a savior to die for the sins of mankind. That the savior would make us right before God and justify us in the kingdom of heaven. That it wouldn't be by what we do, but by what God would do on our account by sending Jesus. That this was the gospel preached to Abraham in Ur as an idolater. You need to go, you need to leave your relatives, you need to go to this land. This is what I'm going to do through you, Abraham. I'm going to provide the Savior, I promise, to Shem, and I promise to Noah, and I promise to Enoch, and I promise to Seth, and I promise to Adam and Eve. It was the gospel that changed Abraham's life. It was the gospel that in this moment, before he even, even leaves Ur, that made him right with God. Now, here's the sad part of the story. Well, on account of God's grace, Abram did believe and place his faith in this promise. Abraham failed to be fully obedient. Like, though Stephen is clear, God had commanded Abraham while he was in Ur to get out of your country and from your relatives, come to a land I will show you. The passage we read in Genesis 11 tells us that what happened? Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, Sarai, Abram's wife, and they went out of Ur to go, we're told, to the land of Canaan. Like, keep in mind, they start with the right destination in mind, the correct destination. They leave Ur wanting to go where? To the land that God would promise, Canaan. And yet we're told when they came to Haran, what happened? They decided to dwell there instead. Now, what is interesting about all of this is we have no idea what caused Terah to leave Ur. As a matter of fact, Isaiah 51 verse 2, we're told, quote, that God called Abraham alone. Terah did not receive the same calling, the same message. <laughs> Abram, there was something about his father that he couldn't detether himself from, something he couldn't let go of. He leaves Ur, but it's partial obedience, right? Because he was also supposed to leave his relatives, but he takes them with him. Terah, even after he dies, Abraham still 
isn't fully obedient. We'll come to see that he takes Lot with him, and that ends terribly. Regardless, this is what we can say for sure. Abram was called to go to the land of Canaan, right? God had done a work in his heart. It was grace, it was faith, and the Savior changed him. They had to get moving. Go to the land of Canaan. And yet, because he failed to be obedient to God's commands to get out from your relatives, what happens? Abram ends up settling in Haran until his father dies. You know, Terah. Names mean things. Interestingly, that Terah means delay. That's what the word means, delay. Haran means parched or barren. Keep in mind, because of Abram's failure to obey, these years in Haran, we're not told anything that happens there, are we? Nowhere in Scripture are we told what happens there. They are completely wasted years. They're unfruitful. They're unproductive to God's plan. Abraham camps out in Haran. He waits till his father dies. But during those years, no mention of God's appearing. No mention of God's working. We have no narrative of this massive season of Abram's life. And why? Because he wasn't obedient. Like, understand, though in Haran, Abraham was still righteous before God because he had placed his faith in the Savior. Practically speaking, Abraham's life, what God would do was limited because he failed to act consistently with God's word. It's a warning to us. Let's get to chapter 12. We read, Now the Lord had said to Abram, You might want to circle that word had. It's an important word. Saying, get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. (laughs) I love this. God called Abram an Ur. But, as we noted, because of his failure to be obedient, he spends countless fruitless years in Haran until Terah dies. Then, what happens? Upon his father's death, we're told, now the Lord had said. This word had, it it implies, this phrase in the Hebrew, that God continued to say. That this was not the first command. We know from Stephen, the first command was back in Ur. As a matter of fact, the case can be made that God continued to say the whole time that Abram was in Haran, that this is what I'm calling. This is my plan. This is the mission. Will you get moving? And he waits, and he waits, and he waits, and he waits until his father finally dies. In a a profound way, while Abram continued to be disobedient. He makes this detour. He fails to obey God's word. God kept speaking, right? God's grace still remains sure and his calling secure. Notice God reiterates here three specific promises to Abram. Now, we're not going to dive into them in, in, in detail. We'll get to it in the coming weeks. But the three promises, very specific. One, I will make you a great nation. Two, I will bless you and make your name great. And thirdly, you shall be a blessing to all the families of the earth. 
David Guzik writes in his commentary on this passage, quote, These are God's promises. Notice how often God says, I will, in these verses. Chapter 11 is all about the plans of man. But Genesis chapter 12 is all about the plans of God. Let's just continue reading. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him. And Lot went with him. Still a terrible mistake. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Then Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, his nephew, and all of their possessions that they had, to, that they had gathered, and the people with whom they had acquired in Haran. And they departed to go to the land of Canaan. So they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, as far as the terebinth tree of Morai, and the Canaanites were then in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said to your descendants, I will give this land. And there Abram built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And he moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east, There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. So Abram Abram journeyed, going on still towards the south. We're going to discuss this more next next week. But I do want to turn your attention for just a minute to God's valuation of the season of Abraham's life. Like, remember, like, the nuts and bolts of what happens. He's He's an idol worshiper, steeped in paganism, lost wicked, sinful. And yet God, the God of glory, steps into his life. The light of revelation shines brightly. God gives him the gospel. Abram, are you sick of trying to earn the favor of God through these sacrifices? What if I told you that the favor of God would be given through a savior that I'm going to send? And Abraham believes it. It's accounted to him for righteousness. It changes his life. It roots him. His faith is placed not in these pagan gods, but in the true and living God who would send this Savior. God says you need to go. For me to to enact this plan through your family, you got to leave behind Ur. You've got to leave your relatives. You've got to go to a land I'm going to show you, a land of promise. So, Abraham's like, yeah. And you can imagine the conversation with his father. We don't know exactly what happens other than the fact that Terah goes along and he never makes it. Never makes it to Canaan. They get stuck in Haran. And it's barren and it's parched and it's a delay. Abraham's faith is still secure. God's blessing is still there. His position in heaven hasn't changed, but what God can do practically in his life is on hold if you're not going to be obedient. It's on hold. And then Terah dies. And in Abraham, there's this stirring again. And what does he do? He gets moving. Now, he still brings Lot with him. But you see God's grace because God picks right up. You delayed. I didn't. Let's go. You're going to walk. Let's do this. So you've got these years in Haran. Totally wasted, right? 
Notice God's evaluation of this time. Hebrews chapter 11. Let me read it for you. This great hall of faith, Paul writing concerning Abraham, we're told by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. Did you catch that for a minute? This great man of faith, we're told, is recorded by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And when he went out, not knowing where he was going, by faith, he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac, his son, Jacob, his grandson, the heirs with him of the same promise, waiting for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Do you notice what's missing? Like the entire detour in Haran, not recorded, not even mentioned. As a matter of fact, God's evaluation of Abraham, even during this season, he's obedient. Called him to go, he went. Took him a while, but he got there. He took a detour, but my grace was still sufficient to get him to the location. He was obedient. That's God's evaluation. How in the world could God overlook this clear season of disobedience? (laughs) Because he casts our sin as far as the east is to the west. That by his grace, God doesn't remember these things. That his grace is sufficient. Because Abram was already righteous before God on account of God's grace and his faith in the coming Savior, God doesn't take this detour into account. It's not how he even evaluates. (laughs) God does this a lot. Have you ever been reading through the Bible? And you read, you know, first, you know, first Samuel, second Samuel, first Kings, second Kings, you get through it, right? And then what, what does God give you? First and second Chronicles. And you're like, I'm just going to read all this again, apparently. Like it is the same history, right? That we have first and second Kings, first and second uh, Samuel, first and second Chronicles, same history. First and Second Chronicles, though, was written much later when the children of Israel re- were returning from Babylon. Written more than likely by Ezra. First and Second Chronicles is what God wanted these children of Israel, who had totally blown it and had totally suffered, who had been in Babylon for 70 years and were just now being allowed to go back. First and Second Chronicles is God's view of First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. It's what God remembers. How interesting. If you would say, what was a pivotal turning point in King David's life? What would it be? Two things would jump out at you. Bathsheba. You know the story where the man after God's own heart commits adultery, has her husband assassinated, cold-blooded murder. It's a mob hit. And then later, all the problems with his kids that's clearly recorded, we see it, when God evaluates the same time period, guess what's left out? All of that. When you start reading through the Bible, when you start getting God's evaluations of things that have happened, you're going to find over and over and over and over again that the mistakes, the blunders, the detours are forgotten. Why? Because that's what God does. 
Now, that doesn't mean there's not a practical limitation. I mean, what God could do in Abraham's life was, was on pause until he would be obedient. But because he was right, because grace had changed him, because he had placed his faith in a Savior, when God looked back on it, he didn't see it. He didn't see it. How incredible with your life. You know, you, you hear pastors all the time. They make this case, right? Of wise Christians, we need to make sure that we're on the up and up, the straight and narrow. Because at some point in our life, right, you're going to die and you're going to stand in heaven before God. And you know what's going to happen, friend? You're going to stand in that great Colosseum, and all your friends and family are going to be sitting out there. And there you are, spotlit, right on you. And then the, the great grand projector screen of heaven is going to come down. And they're going to press play. And we're all going to watch your life, what you did with your life. Oh, Lord is right. <laughs> and in those moments, you're going to be be pretty worried because, you know, hey, you know what happened. And it's going to be playing through your life. And it's going to get to that, you know, that time where, you know, you decided to go to a few websites online that you shouldn't be visiting. And you're like, oh, no, my wife's going to see it. My mother. What's going to happen? It's going to be so embarrassing. When I did this or when I did that, you'll even hear people say, hey, sins done in secret, they're going to come a day that we're all going to see it. So you should be careful. Right? Am I the only one that, that heard this? It's a total farce. It's not the gospel. It's not grace. It's not even biblical. Because God casts our sin as far as the east is to the west, that though our sins were as scarlet through Jesus and what he did, I have been made white as snow. That when God sees me, he doesn't see any of that crap. He sees Jesus' righteous covering. Yes, my life will be played. But those parts are deleted forever. God sees them not, nor does he evaluate them not. Only thing that will be shown is how my life furthered the kingdom of God. And the result is that it'll be a judgment of reward, not a judgment towards punishment. Right here, this calling of Abraham, in conclusion, to quickly recap, there are three important things that you should take away this morning from this passage. One, God's grace finds you even when you aren't looking for it. God appeared and he chose Abram, even though he was steeped in idolatry and had nothing to deserve it. And you might say this morning, well, that sounds a lot like elections, Zach. Yeah, it is. Totally. It is. God chose Abraham. Can't work your way around it did nothing to deserve it. God chose him. He still had to respond. But God chose him. Well, then how do I know I'm elect? 
Well, God just appeared to you this morning and spoke into your life. He's calling you by his grace. Will you believe and place your faith in his Savior? Now the decision's yours. See, that leads to the second point. Yeah, God's grace finds us even when we're not looking for it, even when we don't deserve it, but upon God's appearing. Abraham made a decision to reject the world and to place his faith in Jesus. And he was made righteous. Not on account of anything he did. He was made righteous because of his faith in a Savior. And then thirdly, you can't avoid this either. Failure to obey God's word. Hey, it doesn't separate you from God's grace. God still speaks and his grace is still sufficient. God remembers these seasons not. And yet... It is true. Disobedient to God's word, being disobedient, it will always limit the things that God is wanting to accomplish in your life. You have to make that choice. Yes. It's amazing these seasons are not remembered by God, but don't forget, they aren't remembered by God. Why? Because you didn't do anything. You didn't do anything. What a waste. How tragic. It is when we waste time because of our failure to act according to the grace, the amazing grace that we've been shown. And so, Father, it would...